This is hell. Greetings, listeners. This is board operator Dan. I'm happy to be with you this morning. Chuck is completely fine. He's just taking some well-deserved vacation. So we're in limbo, that's all. Nothing more complicated than that. Vacations are an important part of the cycle of expansion and contraction that governs our material reality. Nobody understands that more perfectly than This Is Hell listeners. We'll return to regular live interviews on August 16th. So we'll be doing this next week too. I do want to mention at the top of the hour, this morning I'm thinking of the forest defenders in Atlanta who have been protecting the Wilani Forest for over a year now making sure it stays a public space that isn't destroyed to build a police training facility. If you want to learn more about that or plug in, look up the hashtag StopCopCity on social media or visit DefendTheAtlantaForest.org. All right. Until Chuck is back from vacation, myself and the other board operators are spinning some of our favorite interviews from This Is Hell's 26-year history. I wanted to play this 2020 interview with sociologist Dilar Dirick about the state of the Kurdish freedom movement at that time. It was a moment where the Kurdish fighting forces, having played an indispensable role in fighting back ISIS in battles like the Manbij Offensive, were left high and dry by their American partners and had to deal with hostile neighbors in Turkey and Syria, all alone. It will be an interesting time to check in with Rojava and see what these harsh realities meant for its storied utopian project of self-determination and egalitarianism. So let's re- let's uh, turn to that interview right now. This is Chuck interviewing Dilar Dirik about the fate of the Kurdish freedom movement back in 2020. This is hell. Authoritarians want you to believe that there is no alternative, that any thought of anything other than the abusive system of violence and war that we currently suffer under is nothing but magical thinking, utopian fantasies and dreams that should be ignored and dismissed. Returning to This is Hell to remind us there is an alternative that we have discussed but far too long ago on the show. Political sociologist Dilar Dirick returns to This Is Hell. Dilar is an activist of the Kurdish women's movement in Europe and a contributor to the book we featured on last week's show, Deciding for Ourselves, The Promise of Direct Democracy, which we discussed with the editor of the collection as well as one of its contributing writers, Cindy Milstein. Dilar's essay in Cindy's collection is entitled Only with you this broom will fly, Rojava, magic, and sweeping away the state inside of us. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Dilar. Hi, thank you. I'm so happy to be back. It's great to have you on the show again. Dilar was on our show back in 2015 when we talked with her about her writing at the time, The Other Kurds Fighting the Islamic State, which was posted at Al Jazeera. You can listen to that interview at thisishell.com. And you can follow Dilar on Twitter at DLR. DRK1. You write that a year into the war in Syria on July 19th, 2012, the people in the majority Kurdish north of the country took over governmental facilities, hoisted their yellow, green, and red flags, and chanting about uh, loud revolutionary music, declared revolution in Rojava. Not many years have passed, 
but enough things have happened since then to fill entire libraries. Why then? What, hap what happened at that moment to allow for that to occur? Um, there was a combination of a lot of different factors. Of course, we cannot separate uh, what happened in Rojava at the time um, from the larger situation at that time in the region. Um, so, of course, one must place it within several different histories, right? On one hand, there is the uh, decades-old history of the Kurdish freedom movement and its uh, legacy also in, in Rojava, specifically. Um, but also, of course, uh, generally uh, democratic um, uh, quests in the region, more generally, uh, what was called at the time and still called uh, the Arab Spring, uh, in 2011, uh, all the, the across different countries in the region, people started to um, protest on a larger scale against authoritarianism and um, and violence from the states uh, that they uh, are the citizens of. So, um, so Rojava must be placed, of course, within the context of the war in Syria, which started in 2011. But it's also uh, not. It cannot only be reduced to a moment that started in 2011 because uh, the Kurdish freedom movement had been operating there uh, in Rojava specifically, secretly for much longer than that. So um, that's why when um, things started to develop uh, in Syria uh, a year into the war, uh, people took the necessary steps at the time to, to protect uh, their own regions uh, from falling into uh yeah, to enter this violence, this the spiral of violence that was taking place at the time. And so, um, of course, and I would argue, and I've, I tried to argue this in the chapter as well, there is also an autonomous women's history, actually, that needs to be considered. So um, there's a combination of different histories that uh, led to what then uh, was declared as the Rojava Revolution. So you also point out that a monstrous fascist entity, the so-called Islamic State or ISIS, rose up, conquered vast territories and fell within years. Yet ISIS only accounts for a small percent of the unimaginable violence, brutality and trauma inflicted on millions of people by the Syrian forces and other groups involved in the ongoing war, not least of which involves the global arms trade that sponsors and perpetuates conflicts around the world. Here in the States, the Syrian war was essentially within our media for a very long time the war with ISIS. And President Trump's announcement of the fall of ISIS was sold to us as a victory, a victory by the United States in the Syrian war. What is missed in understanding the Syrian war when it is only seen as a war with ISIS and Trump claims the fall of ISIS is a U.S. victory in the Syrian war? Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be unpacked here. I mean, there is... Uh the U.S. has played a very negative role uh, throughout. I mean, since 2011, um, the United States under the Obama administration has also actively contributed um, also through cooperation with countries like Turkey, Qatar and Saudi Arabia to the rise of jihadism and jihadist groups in the region through recruitment and arming. And this is not a secret. It's something I actually think I mentioned this even in 2015 on your show, <laughs> actually, back then as well, that uh, even um, Joe Biden actually at the time admitted this, that uh, he said something along the lines of our partners in the region, our allies in the region contributed to the rise of extremism, including ISIS, in the region. So 
we cannot separate, of course, the rise of ISIS from, from the violence that was generally taking place uh, in the region. So people speak, um, of course, uh, of the violence of the Syrian regime, but also, I mean, very quite early on, the, the situation was very violent and there were extremist groups uh, involved. And uh, still today, al-Nusra, al-Qaeda linked uh, groups and also ISIS. So it's, it's, um, it's of course, a whitewashing of the role of the United States to reduce the whole situation in Syria to a U.S.-led victory against ISIS, and it also uh, considering, you know, this this darker story that people prefer to cover up, uh, but also at the same time, uh, ISIS existed um, and has been committing massacres in the region uh, for much longer than. Um, when the U.S. decided to interfere, which was in 2014. And I remember when I was on your show, this was around um, the early months of 2015. Um, this was when the siege of Kobani was broken. And Kobani was the first city that, uh, I mean, people often say it's the first city that defeated ISIS. But how did that happen? So the whole involvement of the United States and the U.S.-led coalition uh, started in 2014, in, in October, September, October 2014, because of the resistance of Kobani as well. So the people in Kobani and in Rojava more generally had been resisting these forces, not just ISIS, but also al-Nusra and other al-Qaeda-linked forces that had been open, openly operating in that region. Also, uh, one must say this very explicitly because of the role that Turkey played in the context of the war in the north. Um, so people had been exposed to these jihadist groups very early on, and they had been of course, uh, establishing their self-defense forces uh, as early as 2011 and then openly since 2012. Uh, we all know the People's Protection Units and the Women's Protection Units, the YPG and the YPJ. Um, so actually, months before, uh, and I've interviewed many people uh, who gave testimony on these, uh, on these events, quite early on, uh, there were Self, not just the YPG and YPJ, but also the people on the ground were uh, receiving armed training openly. There was a mother's battalion that was formed in June of elderly women who said, we will be prepared when ISIS attacks our region because we have seen what ISIS has done to women in other parts of Syria and Iraq. Uh, of course, people uh, remember very uh, vividly what happened to Yazidi women in, Shing in Shingal or Sinjar um, in August 2014, where thousands of women were abducted and sold into sex slavery. Thousands of men were murdered on the spot. I mean, at that time, when these massacres, which, I mean, the Yazidi uh, massacre was then, uh, of course, acknowledged as a, as a genocide, when all of these things happened, nobody in the world was doing anything. People were watching. And it was people on the ground, uh, led by the Kurdish Freedom Movement, who were resisting. So... People said, we do not want a repetition of uh, such massacres. So in Kobani, people were prepared. They were taking their precautions and they did not have anybody to rely on. So this was long before the U.S. involvement. And uh, so 
this is I'm, I'm stressing these uh, detailed events just to make sure that people understand that uh, the US got involved much later. And it was really people on the ground uh, who had no backing, no funding, no arms. They had a few Kalashnikovs and then the weapons that they were able to take from ISIS and other groups uh, with which they were fighting. And they had organized themselves also with a political ideology. So it should also not be understood as just a random, um, spontaneous uh, resistance. It's, it's, it's the product of decades of political organizing by the Kurdish freedom movement along revolutionary ideas that gave people the necessary political consciousness to be prepared to fight. So um, it's, it's not, there's nothing spontaneous about it in that sense, but it was a popular uh, mobilization. So, um, and then of course, uh, people were watching the siege of, of Kobani. People watched, and I interviewed women commanders of, of Kobani. I interviewed two women, Maryam Kobani, for example. She was uh, there during the whole siege. She, she mentioned how they had been fighting for 30 days or so. Only then, as the international media outlets were across the border in Suruç, on the Turkish side of the border, uh, nobody could deny that there was an there was an incredible resistance going on in Kobani. So um, then this is when the Obama administration decided to to get involved. And this was really uncomfortable, uh, not just for the resisting people on the ground, uh, because, um, I mean, for, for other reasons. But, I mean, in that moment, everybody was appreciating, of course, uh, these airstrikes because people were about to die. People, there was going to be yet another massacre of ISIS in, in front of the eyes of the whole world. But then, uh, of course, for the U.S., this meant um, basically engaging in a tactical alliance with the enemies of Turkey. And Turkey is, of course, uh, an important NATO ally of the U.S. So this was all very complicated. And um, so then eventually... Um, the, this this cooperation uh, was taken further, and with the foundation of the Syrian Democratic Forces, there was more direct and explicit uh, cooperation. And throughout this whole time, the the Turkish state was expressing their discontent, saying, uh, criticizing the U.S. for supporting terrorists, because for the Turkish state, it was always clear that uh, they were happier with ISIS at their border than with a Kurdish-led autonomous project. So. Um, the Turkish discourse has been to say, well, the PYD, P YPG, ISIS, they're all the same. They're all terrorist elements, and we need to eliminate this threat to our national security. And the U.S., on the other hand, was saying, no, the SDF are different from the PKK. So this also, of course, led to, on an ideological level, uh, an attempt by the U.S. to try discursively or directly really to dissociate the, the revolution in Rojava from its revolutionary ro ro roots by saying, well, this was uh, this is our victory. And then you've seen when people were announcing the territorial uh, end of ISIS uh, last year, um, all of the states that were members of the coalition, they, they thanked themselves, they thanked the NATO, they thanked each other. But actually, we know that it was the people of a revolutionary movement who were among the first ones to die. There were thousands of people, 11,000 people. Kurds and Arabs uh, mainly, uh, they fought together shoulder to shoulder and they had revolutionary slogans, they had anti-fascist slogans. And uh, so the whole thing, of course, in order to deny uh, the revolutionary character of something like this, one must 
change the discourse. One must, uh, you know, use all of that uh, media arsenal that they have available to undermine that this was actually a socialist project that led the fight against ISIS. So uh, this is why we always, in the Kurdish women's movement as well, it's important to protect these legacies, to claim them. And for women, it was important because when the YPJ uh, declared victory in, in Raqqa, they did so in front of a big picture of Abdullah Öcalan. And they always explained that this was possible, that women rose up against uh, Daesh, against ISIS in places like Kobani and elsewhere uh, because of this revolutionary commitment, because of a belief that uh, women can be free. And they actually gifted the struggle against ISIS that they led and in which they also liberated thousands of women, by the way, who had been enslaved by ISIS um, they said this is our gift to women around the world, to struggling women around the world. So this was actually women's history being written. But if you look at the accounts of the corporate media, of the U.S. official statements, it will look like yet another NATO victory, which is why I think it's very important for, for progressive people, for leftists around the world to understand exactly what happened. Why is, because I think this reveals a lot about Turkey, why is Turkey happier with ISIS being on their border than movements like the Rojava revolution? I mean, um, there are a lot of uh, historic, ideological, geopolitical, economic reasons for that. Uh, but um, in essence, I mean, if you look at the nature of the current Turkish government, uh, it's, it's not only a, a, a very patriarchal, conservative and frankly Islamist um, government, which has, with the help of the US and other groups uh, and the U EU as well, been able to portray itself as a moderate uh, form of Islam, a moderate government, a good progressive neoliberal partner in the region. Of course, it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's the second largest NATO army. Um, so Turkey is a very um, conservative, authoritarian uh, country that gets away with all kinds of human rights abuses and war crimes at the moment. Uh, also, of course, uh, I wrote this chapter on, on Rojava in, in Cindy's uh, in, in the book before the last uh, latest invasion of the Turkish army of Rojava. We might talk about this later. But um, basically, um, Turkey gets away with war crimes and human rights abuses because people fail to understand uh, just exactly what this government is up to. This has to do, of course, with things like the arms trade. Um, many European governments, the US as well, uh, trade in arms with Turkey. They, Turkey is one of the most important arms uh, importers uh, for for Western countries. Uh, also, they're now dealing with, with Russia as well. So um, that's that. For the, these economies to run, the war needs to continue because the arms trade is one of the biggest uh, economies uh, for for these systems, for these governments. And then at the same time, of course, uh, people systematically downplayed the, the, the Turkish state's involvement in supporting jihadist groups uh, in, in Syria uh, and also within within Turkey. Uh, we've seen increasingly a crackdown on on people who were opposing the government and its policies, not just in Syria and Iraq, but also domestic policies. Uh, now, the most progressive people, thinkers, writers, activists, uh, politicians are in jail. Uh, there are thousands of political prisoners in jail in Turkey at the moment, 
who have been um, excluded from the coronavirus amnesty. So now we have lots of people uh, were able to, to, to leave prison. And of course, that's, that's a positive thing, but at the expense of political prisoners. Political prisoners can be sacrificed, apparently, in, in Turkey. So, so all of this um, is, is important to consider the nature of the Turkish state. Actually, ideologically, of course, it will feel closer to, to extremist groups that share at least some level of its ideology and also wider project. I mean, Erdogan's Turkey is specifically targeting uh, ethnic and religious minorities uh, as well. So it's, it's, it's that aspect as well that's important. Of course, the, the situation that unfolded in Rojava, the, the political, social, uh, cultural project, at least, you know, regardless of the level in which it could be implemented, it is a progressive one. It is one that was um, uh, established uh, also by women. It was one that said, actually, a, a third way is possible in Syria. We do not have to choose between the Syrian regime and an opposition that, you know, may have started in a very genuine, democratic and progressive way, but it was very soon uh, co-opted and um, supported by uh, by reactionary forces from outside. So um, that's, uh, so as some people who I've interviewed were saying, it's Rojava in that moment was, was an alternative in a region that um, had historically had to choose, uh, been made to choose, forced to choose between uh, different kinds of dictatorships or different kinds of reaction, whether it's uh, secular militaris, uh, militarist regimes or uh, Islamist regimes, the Muslim Brotherhood, and all of these different groups, right? But this discourse has been actively also uh, imposed on this region by the US and others through interventionism and, and foreign wars and all, all kinds of stuff. So in this sense, um, Something like Rojava, not just Rojava, of course, there's other progressive uh, freedom-loving people and movements in the region. These voices are actively being silenced. And by making Erdogan's Turkey look like a good option for Middle Eastern people, they're actually condemning women, ethnic and religious minorities, uh, differently thinking people, um, the young people. They condemn them to something that actually cannot be, should not be an alternative. Erdogan is not a moderate uh, government, uh, but that's also something that people in the region, more generally in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, need to understand. So uh, in this sense, um, it was very clear very early on, as I mentioned, we were protesting as early as 2012 and 13 about um, these jihadist groups in the region and how they were uh, either directly or indirectly somehow linked uh, to the Turkish state. And this is still something that people are not uh, putting enough attention to. You were just saying that they are actively being silenced. To you, what explains that silencing by the media, especially here in the United States? What explains, in your opinion, U.S. media denialism of Turkey's support for ISIS? What explains this active, uh, actively being silenced by the media when it comes to the actions and the successes of the Rojava revolution? Yeah, I mean, there's there's two things. On one hand, of course, uh, the alliance between uh, Turkey and the U.S. Um, is very strategic uh, in the sense that not just because of the arms trade, but also economically, uh, politically, Turkey is an important ally for the U.S. in the region. So 
this is one reason why Turkey gets away with all of these. Uh, I mean, Turkey openly uh, recruited, armed and trained, funded all of these groups that it now calls Syrian National Army, which are occupying large parts of the um, in the border region in Rojava and um in the north of Syria uh, by the Turkish border. So these people, if you look at what happened in Afrin in 2018 when the Turkish army invaded and has been occupying Afrin ever since, these people are jihadists. They have absolutely no difference between themselves and the methods employed by ISIS. The first thing that they did was to torture the bodies of dead Kurdish women fighters, uh, insulting them in very misogynistic ways. Uh, They... They, they, they went after Kurdish uh, politician, women politicians. They destroyed everything that the women's movement had been building up ever since. So not just in Afrin, I'm also talking about the later operation that started in October 2019. And so uh, Hevrin Khalaf, a Kurdish uh, politician who was working for uh, the, the peace and uh, friendship between peoples, she was targeted and executed. She was uh, assassinated by these forces. And um, so, so what does all of this tell us? These people, uh, not just the way they look, also their slogans, uh, their methods. The people say, and the women I've interviewed also ever since, are saying there's absolutely no difference between them and Daesh. And these are forces that are directly armed, trained, and funded by Turkey, which is a uh, EU member candidate, but at the same time also the second largest NATO army. So these are basically NATO's allies. NATO's allies are jihadists who use the same methods as Al-Qaeda and uh, and Daesh, as ISIS. So um, this is outrageous. But the fact that these people are filming their own war crimes, filming their human rights abuses, they're also abducting uh, women, by the way. They're also targeting the religious sites of Alevis and Yazidis uh, in, in Afrin and other places. Um, they're looting people's homes. They have documented these themselves. Okay, so it's not a, a, a little claim made by some random Kurdish people. No, these jihadists are... Uh, filming their own war crimes, and yet people are looking away. So there are some human rights abuses, uh, sorry, human rights reports, also uh, a UN report uh, that was issued uh, mentioning these things, but actually nobody, people are saying uh, we need to uh, motivate Turkey to stop uh, these abuses in its in the areas that it occupies, but actually nobody fundamentally challenges the occupation itself. And the the slogan of the women's movement, by the way, for International Day Against Violence Against Women was occupation is violence. So people, because of this anti-terrorism paradigm, because of this whole security discourse, people think it is legitimate for Turkey um, to actually invade these regions if that serves its, its national security interests. And why? This is then the second point, is because, uh, of course, Rojava... Um, is, is understood as being directly linked to the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK. And so, of course, pictures like uh, those of Abdullah Öcalan, um, the, the ideology, the political practice and so on, um, these are used then as a pretext for the Turkish state to say, well, basically, it's the PKK operating there. But again, this comes down to how you want to frame and understand the whole situation. I mean, people, 
uh, would not have been able to resist in Kobani and elsewhere. And this is what people say very openly, including the commanders of Kobani. It's like, this is the legacy of the Kurdish freedom movement. This is also the legacy of the Kurdistan Workers' Party that has been operating here since uh, 1979, which is when Abdullah Jalan crossed into Syria. The political organizing and education that has been happening there meant that for the first time, women were leaving their homes for political work, right? So you cannot deny this, this legacy. But at the same time, uh, because of the ter uh, PKK's terror labeling, it's b basically equating the PKK, the, the movement that is behind uh, many of these progressive things that people like about the Kurdish movement, in including the autonomous women's movement. Um, they're equating them, the PKK, and th by that uh, logic also the whole project of Rojava, with being just the same as, as ISIS. And this has been Turkey's discourse the whole time. So Turkey employs itself these forces that are committing these war crimes, that are assassinating female politicians, that are torturing the bodies of women. Um, that's not terrorist, but the, the revolutionary movement in Rojava is, is a terrorist one. So this comes down generally to this whole war on terror thing as well, which is why Turkey gets away with all of these things, because it can say this is about my national security, which is why actually it doesn't really make much sense to appeal to states, because they all buy into this, right? People... Um, societies, really, progressive thinking people, groups, um, I'm not talking just about rights groups, but really genuine uh, political organizers need to understand exactly what is going on there. And they need to understand uh, the ways in which the Turkish state is contributing to violence in the region. And this maybe it's not so relevant for you guys in the US, but especially here in Europe, I mean, the European Union has given Turkey millions of euros for the so-called refugee crisis that actually Turkey and all of these states through their arms trades, through their policies have helped create, right? So uh, people were displaced, 300,000 people were displaced from Afrin, hundreds of thousands of people were displaced in uh, the latest Turkish operation, so-called Operation Peace Spring in October 2019. Turkey is actively creating refugees and internally displaced people, yet Turkey is receiving money from the EU although it is using these war criminals to, uh, to to attack these regions and turn more people into. So it's it's all a circle, you know, it's a circle of war and violence. And the European Union, the United States and other countries are all implied in it, which is why we say you cannot separate what is happening in Rojava from wider things that are happening in the region, including the refugee crisis, including the arms trade, including the rise of authoritarianism, racism, and people like Trump, Erdogan, uh, Bolsonaro and all the others, they mutually reinforce each other. It's, it's, they, they have created a system in which people find it difficult to even imagine alternatives, which is why there is this massive media silence on not just the meaning of Rojava, not just what has been built up there, but also uh, just the ways in which it has been attacked and is now being sacrificed for the sake of these economic and political interests of these uh, forces. And you write, if uh, a decade ago, if you had told the impoverished and colonized Kurdish people in northern Syria that one day internationalists from around the world would be buried in these lands after helping to defend the people's resistance against fascism, who would have believed it? Some argue that they simply do not have the power to have a revolution, some sort of political or social transformation. Yet with Rojava, this is a revolution by those who are impoverished, colonized, 
So is the problem not the lack of power, but the abundance of it? That is, is power or even the illusion of power an obstacle to revolution? Do we not rise up because we believe here in the States that our vote does have power? Do we have to lack power to get power? Well, that's a big philosophical question. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that I've been talking about war and destruction too much. So let's say a few positive things, perhaps. I mean, look, it all comes down to political uh, organizing, right? Like power. How? What do you mean? What do you mean by power? And the last uh, couple of years here in the UK or or in the US and other places people have been focusing so much on on elections on electoral campaigns on getting people on board to overthrow or to you know at least not re-elect uh, people like Trump like Boris Johnson and others so uh, of course uh, this kind of politics, the, which we can call, you know, either electoral or just, you know, mainstream politics, state-centric politics, whatever, it is, of course, it is one side of the struggle. Likewise, in Turkey, people are doing uh, a lot of work on that level to to change the government, to to force it to accept uh, some of the demands that other people make. But that's not enough. I mean, in order to really be meaningfully politically powerful, it doesn't mean we have to adopt uh, the same methods of power uh, as those that are in power and that use that power to to oppress people, right? So how can we actually build power through alliance? Through, um, on one hand, we need uh, internal political education mechanisms for our own internal democracy. I mean, in the Kurdish freedom movement, it's uh, the example I can give is, for example, the women's movement, also as a struggle against power in the movement itself, uh, a struggle for anti-authoritarianism in the movement itself through women's autonomy. Uh, and likewise, uh, across the board, I mean, the uh, Kurdish movement and many other movements are now reaching out to each other. We now say in line with many other feminists in the world is that actually today the biggest social movement is the women's movement. We've seen it in the 8th March celebrations in places like Mexico, Argentina, many uh, different parts of the world. Right. How can these struggles actually reach out to each other rather than um, being forced to ally with states. I mean, look, the, the, the tragedy that happened in October 2019 happened also because of the U.S., uh, uh, you know, the Trump's announcement of withdrawing the uh, U.S. troops from the region, which then basically was a green light for Turkey to, to attack, right? So why did this happen? Why are uh, Palestinians, for example, often put in a position in which they have to uh, address their demands to other states that are also oppressive. Why are oppressed people, colonized people, always put in a position in which they have to accept whoever gives them help? It's not going to lead us anywhere, right? But that's unfortunately the reality right now. But that's also because the struggles, the progressive struggles, the democratic struggles in the different countries are often too occupied uh, with whatever is happening within the borders of their nation state. But actually, we need to build power, I think, in a transnational way, in ways in which uh, we can find new vocabularies where we can learn from each other and to understand, really, that defending Rojava uh, from Turkish state fascism, uh, from other forms of attacks, but right now, really, it's the Turkish state that is the biggest danger. Uh, an attack on Rojava, uh, a suffocation of Rojava, will also mean a suffocation of other uh, liberation movements and struggles in other parts of the world. Look, the criminalization of the Kurdish movement 
is also um, the criminalization of other social movements in, in Europe. The Kurdish movement is one of the biggest and most organized Kur uh, social movements in Europe. And the ways in which it is targeted and harassed and criminalized is actually unbelievable. If people look into it more closely, they will understand the implications of it. What the attacks on Rojava mean is really is, an, is, a, is a campaign against all liberation movements. I think this is what we need to understand, which is why also for us, it's important to defend and protect other liberation struggles across the board. And that's why I think um, seizing power in that sense means, uh, means, means, means organizing from the grassroots, means uh, creating political consciousness among people, uh, creating ways in which we can organize ourselves, methods of organizing that are not um, simply about, uh, yeah, just how do we elect a government that we um, like, but actually, how do we change the system? And I think this is very important when we look at uh, the climate change and other issues as well, right? It's simply we're past the stage where we can say um, this is, you know, we, we, if we just change the government, it will be fine. We literally need a bigger, more radical system change. And more and more people are understanding that. And my, my hope and our hope as a Kurdish movement in general is it's, it, will, it must be led by the youth and the women. Dilara, first of all, I could talk to you all day long and every show <laughs> for a few weeks because I really enjoy listening to you. Your answers are exceptional. Uh, so to what extent is revolution being a crime? To what extent is revolution criminal, being criminalized? How much is that an obstacle to revolution? And more importantly, I guess, what does it say to you about the nation state? when transformation from it is against the law, breaks the law, transformation, the discussion of transformation, even failed transformation is a crime. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the idea of the nation state is actually totally opposed to, to social transformation because the nation state is a project of uh, social engineering in that sense. It is, um, you know, as we see in the Middle East where the nation state is less than 100 years old in a way, um, it's about one nation, one flag, one um, sometimes one religion, uh, one way of running things, right? So the nation state is holding a monopoly over all different spheres of our lives, not just the economy, uh, but also history, history writing, meaning, meaning giving, uh, the media, uh, society, culture. So uh, we are turned into subjects of, of state rather than uh, understanding each other, ourselves and each other in a more horizontal fashion as members of society. So for us in the Kurdish freedom movement, words like community and society are so important. How can we become societies again? How can we uh, transcend this uh, individualistic um um, basically identity that is so tied to the state. We're all citizens of states. Our loyalty is to the state. We, The whole way in which we look at the world is so centered around what citizen are you? So how can we then build communities, build societies? So in this sense, um, I guess criminalization, as we see also uh, more and more in different parts of the world, uh, in Europe and elsewhere, uh, when social movements or political groups, political ideas are criminalized and equated with <laughs> things like terrorism, when, when radical women's organizing or radical environmentalist organizing is equated with, um, with violent neo-Nazi terrorism or 
or Islamist uh, uh, violence similarly, like, I mean, reactionary fascist uh, groups, let's say, then we must co ask ourselves, what does this mean? What is the implication of this? Because the nation state basically takes over the right to say, this is good and this is bad. I decide what is moral. I decide what is normal and what isn't. So by pushing people who are slightly challenging the state to the realm of criminalization, by, by criminalizing even the few uh, great alternatives that we have, that we cling on to, the state is trying to tell us, no, if you do this, you are abnormal. I will isolate you from society. I will put you in prison or I will turn you into a paranoid person. I will surveil you. So all of these aspects are important to understand criminalization. Why do the same nation states openly support or fund uh, actual terrorists, I mean, if we try to reclaim the word terrorism, anti-terrorism from the state and just make a very basic moral assessment of what is terror, right? What does terror actually mean? Why does the state get to decide what is terrorist and what isn't? Of course, uh, there's some basic sense in which we can understand when something actually causes terror and violence and harm to people. But in other cases, it's just unjustified why certain things should be criminalized and not others. Why is the state able to get away with everything and nobody will hold the state ever accountable for anything it does or alliances like NATO and so on. So the, the implications of criminalization really say a lot about what do we mean by life? What do we mean by polit politics? What does it mean in times of coronavirus or, or other things, right? So it's basically a suffocation of people's ability to decide for themselves uh, as, as Cindy's title suggests. So in this sense, I think um, social transformation then must be understood in a different way. And if you look at it from a feminist perspective, it's also about the transformation of social relations. It's about transforming uh, our relations, our friendships, our families, uh, our uh, communities in ways that actually render us politically literate, render us uh, more able to uh, create the tools and methods for a self-determined and autonomous life. It doesn't mean we can overthrow entire governments with it, but it is necessary uh, to create communities in order for us to have a more collective shared understanding of what is wrong in this world, because that's also something that's really missing. Most people today uh, may not even be aware of all of the damage and harm that is being done to them. I think now with the whole situation of the virus, people are uh, opening their eyes to some of it, but actually considering the fact that every day so many people are dying on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, which again, uh, we need to credit the European Union for, for this uh, uh, horrible, for these horrible crimes. You know, people are dying on a daily basis on the way to uh, a safer place because they are running away from weapons that were produced uh, by the European governments. For example, I'm just giving that as an example to say, how normalized is it for people around the world that all of this war and violence is happening? And we, uh, we then get forced into thinking that, oh, actually this is just the world. People are just inherently bad. The world is just inherently bad. What can I do about it? I just watch my TV shows, but no, there's systems, there are structures that create and perpetuate these violences. And we can educate ourselves on them. We can understand them. But in order to really properly understand them, we must shift our focus away from just focusing on our government, our nation state, our nation, our culture, whatever, but actually look, look in a more global way. 
to understand the links between systems of violence and oppression, but also the links between the struggles that we're leading. And how can we strengthen each other's hands? I think that must be at the heart of a new internationalism as well for the 21st century. You write that the statist notions of socialism stand in contrast to movements and perspectives that rely on the consciousness as well as action of everyday people and their potential to become subjects of transformative social processes without orders from above. Has socialism, whatever shortcomings socialism has had, has it not worked, not because socialism doesn't work, but because the state doesn't work? Is the biggest obstacle to socialism the state? Um, One would argue, I mean, yeah, I would say uh, partly yes, uh, because the state as a as a system, as a project, um, as an institution, especially the nations, especially the authoritarian states that we have today. I mean, states don't have to look the way they do, um, but but this is how they, uh, this is what they turn into, because the structure uh, that they, the structures that they have, the the monopoly that they have on different aspects of life, basically make the room for them to crack down on on the liberties and and rights that they are supposed to be uh, protecting in theory. So uh, socialism um, socialism is a is a is a is an ideal. It's not something that belongs to just one party, one individual, one um, one legacy. Uh, many different parts of the world, especially in the global south, different movements, women, young people, people have died for this ideal. People have given all their lives for these ideals uh, because it's a promise of justice. It's a promise of um of liberation. So, of course, there's different uh, discussions within, but if you just take it very broadly, if we divorce it from, let's say, the Soviet legacy or uh, or Maoist legacies and so on, just socialism as an ideal, and with that also anarchism and, uh, and, and other forms of uh, freedom-focused, freedom-loving, justice-focused uh, ideas and ideologies, um, of course, the state then becomes an obstacle because if your concern is then to seize power, to have a mechanism to control people, to control the economy, rather than uh, turning people into agents of, of their own lives, if your concern is more about social control, about disciplining people, and that's that was basically one of the things about state socialism is that that, that whole bureaucratic. Uh, authoritarian apparatus that then develops, of course, at some point it will break with the promise of liberation because then it will become oppressive itself, which is why if we look at socialism from through feminist perspectives, through libertarian perspectives, through ecological perspectives, uh, and also through perspectives from non-Eurocentric or Western-centric perspectives, I think we can enrich our understanding of what it means. If we look at it from uh, in a very broad sense as a promise for liberation, socialism is something that uh, I think we can all uh, unite behind. And actually many people who have been taught to think of it as a very dirty term, and I know this is the case in the US and in other places, um, people don't understand what it is because this is again part of the discourse that people equated immediately with the the bad uh, bad examples in history, with bad negative legacies, with horrible legacies. Actually, I don't want to just say bad; it's actually quite terrifying. 
Um, but that's not uh, that's not what socialism is. Socialism is what we make it. Uh, socialism is something that we can build through building communities, through solidarity, through mutual aid, through um, uh, basically finding alternatives to what is it. In that sense, uh, the the claim socialism or barbarism, I think, is very much relevant to our times today. And this is how, again, to come back to Rojava, uh, this was basically the the idea that motivated the the fighters and the people on the ground when they were resisting against ISIS, not just the fighters, there was, was a huge mobilization on a popular level. It was literally, it was socialism or barbarism or fascism in the sense, right? Um, so in a world in which especially women experience all forms of violence on a daily basis, of course, women then will become among the strongest if they politically organize, if they unite, if they find good methods to do that, if they don't turn into elite movements, but actually have roots in, in the culture, in the, uh, in the popular masses, if they find uh, approaches that are not authoritarian, that do not look down at people. And this is very much possible, especially through uh, people listening to feminists, actually. Um, I think then we will find uh, ways in which we can reclaim uh, words like socialism, like anarchism, and the most beautiful aspects about them, which are basically about liberation. We have been speaking with political sociologist Dilar Derek. She is an activist of the Kurdish women's movement in Europe. She's also a contributor to the book we featured on last week's show, Cindy Milstein's Deciding for Ourselves, The Promise of Direct Democracy. Dilar's essay in that book is entitled, Only With You This Broom Will Fly, Rojava, Magic and Sweeping Away the State Inside of Us. Follow Dilar on Twitter at D-L-R-D-R-K, and then followed by the number one. One last question for you, Dilar, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from <laughs> hell. The question, from we, hell. <laughs> the question we hate to ask, you hate to answer, our audience is going to hate the response. I think more so, <laughs> the person who this is the most hellish for are people here in the United States, in capitalist United States, who do fear socialism so much. You write that... Yet this is a region where many taboos have been broken. Forcibly destroyed practices of self-sufficiency have now been remembered and revived. And people don't just aspire to reinstitute the past, but rather to do better. To you, what explains why capitalism so often looks backward to the past for its future. We have President Trump who says we want to make uh, make America great again. And I think what he's talking about is the amount of profits, corporate profits that were happening in the 1990s. We have the new Green Deal that looks back at the new deal of World War or prior to World War II. Why does capitalism not simply try to do better than it ever has instead of always looking backward for solutions moving forward? Why does capitalism not have a magical future because capitalism is killing the future and capitalism is really not creative at all capitalism is often described as you know very innovative very future oriented futuristic but actually all the creativity um, of production comes from workers comes from creative people comes from artists comes from those who are silenced and marginalized uh, capitalism has no imaginary it has no horizon because it's based on um, uh, it, it relies on funding, it relies on certain resources, it just wants to get by and in the meantime make some people rich. So capitalism lacks the ability to even imagine anything. I mean, it's not, I'm, not, I'm talking as if it's uh, one agent, there's not one capitalism that sits somewhere in an office and makes decisions, <laughs> but the whole, 
the whole structure, the whole infrastructure, the logic, the mentality that uh, capitalism uh, fosters, uh, it, it always needs to look, look back and create myths about how things used to be, how we can go back to that, how we can do even better than uh, what we did something in the past. So, but I mean, who's the future? It's, it's young people who are suffering the most now. Uh, from capitalist policies. Uh, it's people who are able to think differently, people who are open-minded, people who say, actually, this is enough. We, we don't want this anymore. And I mean, America was never great again. It's ba it's a country that was uh, based on genocide against indigenous people. Uh, it's based on uh, the enslavement of, of, of uh, Africans. Of It's now based on the system of racism, of uh, incarceration and, and violence, right? So, I mean, Trump and his video, uh, I mean, I sometimes watch him and he says, I don't know, maybe it's like this or not. I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, his, his, his words have massive consequences. I mean, because of a phone call with Erdogan, the Turkish army was able to invade Rojava and displace hundreds of thousands of people, kill thousands of civilians. I mean, this is the future of capitalism. This is what they have in mind. They don't care about life. And if a system like capitalism does not care about life, then it cannot think about past, future, or present in any sense of the way. It has is beyond time because it's just concerned with the moment. Moment. We're just concerned with making profit in that moment. Which is why, again, uh, the future can only be built by people who actually have the imaginary, who have the willpower, and have the desire, to, who have the love and passion and and freedom in their hearts to believe that. This is not how we need to be. We don't need to live like this. We don't need to destroy nature. We don't need to uh, resort to ecocide in order for economies to work. And this is why I think, you know, learning from indigenous peoples, uh, learning from, from uh, communities like uh, uh, radical black communities in the US, uh, feminists in different parts of the world, people in the global south, revolutionaries in different parts of the world, and, and these alternative projects that do exist, I think we need to look there to also look at the future. Because, I mean, um, sometimes some of the practices of certain communities are quite ancient, they're very old, so it may not make sense to look at them if you want to look at the future. But actually, what is the future? The whole concept of there is a linear progressive timeline and we're advancing towards somewhere, that's also very Eurocentric and capitalistic mindset. How about we protect life? How about we sustain ourselves in ways that are not based on ideas around progress and technology and innovation. I mean, there are people who plan on colonizing Mars for rich people, right? I mean, this is that kind of mindset, that kind of logic that we're up against in a place where there's so much poverty, so much injustice in the world. So this is why I think we need to also rethink what we mean by future, by time, and start organizing in the here and now so that we can even have a future, so that our planet doesn't get destroyed. Best so ever. Listen, listen to best. listen to women. Listen to <laughs> feminists. Listen to all of the people that are being targeted by the likes of Trump. That's that's all I want to say. <laughs> best ever answer to a question from Hal Delar. I really oh. <laughs> I really appreciate you being back on the show. And right now, Thank what you. I'm looking forward to most is having you back on the show. It is always a pleasure to hear your voice. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for being back on. And Thank we will you. talk to you very soon. Can I just say one last thing? Sure. Sure. Um, I don't want to take up much more time. I mean, first of all, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoy the conversation. Um, I mean, there's a lot of very horrible stuff. There's war, displacement. There's, uh, I mean, people really should pay attention to many of the other conflicts as well in, in the region. The Saudi-led war in Yemen, for example. 
attacks happening in so many different places, uh, right? But also at the same time, there are people who do very amazing work. And I just want to point out uh, that especially uh, people, um, they, they, they don't need us to just say, uh, I stand with you, I am in solidarity with you, or protect this, protect that. We actually need to start organizing together. And just, just I just wanted to say that, uh, especially now uh, with what's happening in Rojava, we should not separate it from things that are open, also happening in Turkey or in other parts of Syria, in Iraq, in, in the region in general. So I just wanted to say that on a positive note, because I felt that the whole thing was a bit negative, but actually the chapter <laughs> and just generally people, there is hope. And that, I think that's one thing that people should never forget. There is hope and people uh, can do things together if they actually organize. So, yeah, thank you so much. And, for your and, work and, that, well. and that lives can flourish in places like Rojava and that we can read about how people are already uh, making a sustainable alternative it's not that there is no alternative. TIA exactly. didn't span, stand for there is no alternative. I think what it stood for was there is now authoritarianism. I think that that's what Margaret Thatcher was really saying mm. with Tina. So one of the yeah. places people can start to so they can see how we can actually organize together is by checking out Cindy's great collection, which you are a contributor to. Dilara, thank, thank you, you so much for being back on our show. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. All right. You too. You've been listening to a. That was Chuck speaking with sociologist Dilar Dirick about Rojava in 2020. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Capitalism has no horizon. That's what Dilar said. That's poetic. I think that's probably true. Playing that. 2020 interview got my curious mind burning at a mean rate. Chuck referred to an earlier 2015 interview with Dilar, and I figure, here we are. We're at the party. Let's have a drink. So uh, those that are seized by the same curiosity or have simply wandered away from their computer and left the stream running, here's Chuck speaking in 2015 with Dilar Derek a little earlier, a moment in which I imagined things were looking a bit rosier for Rojavo. But let's uh, let's get into the slipstream and see what things were like back then. We've been talking about all the new challenges to the traditional seats of power around the world, from the Islamic State and how it challenges our notion of the modern state, to Syriza and how they are standing up to the Eurozone's austerity policies, to Spain's Podemos, who have created a whole new form of democracy, even to the extra statecraft of free trade zones that exist outside a nation's and a people's laws. But there's something completely unique happening in Western Kurdistan, a new kind of democracy, and it's led by women, and they are fighting and beating the Islamic State. Here to tell us about Rojava, Kurdish refugee Dalar Durek is an activist of the Kurdish women's movement and a PhD candidate in the sociology department of the University of Cambridge, where her research focuses on Kurdistan, the Kurdish women's movement, and the PYD, or Democratic Union Party, which has existed in the Rojava territories since 2004. Good morning in Chicago, Dalar. Good evening in the Middle East, wherever you are. Hello. Hi. Thank you. <laughs> Where are you in the Middle East today? I'm in Ahmed, but Ahmed is the Kurdish uh, name for the officially called Diyarbakir, which is in northern Kurdistan, Turkey. No wonder we were having so much trouble getting in touch with you. Uh, you can read <laughs> you can read uh, Dilar's uh, blog at 
ROJ Women, ROJWomen.org. You can find Delar Dirk's uh, blog right there. Like when we interviewed Yanis Varoufakis about Syriza prior to their winning the election in Greece, and like when we spoke with Jesus Castillo last week about the Spanish anti-austerity movement, Podemos, we have to start at the very beginning with this, the, the very basics, uh, as these are movements that are not reported on in the U.S. media What? So ever. I'm telling you, I have not seen any reporting on what's going on in Rojava. I haven't seen hardly any reporting. I mean, over the last 20 years of doing this show about what's going on with the Kurdish people and what's going on with Kurdistan. So to start, Rojava means Western and Kurdish, as in Western Kurdistan. And along the Syrian-Turkish border in northern Syria, there's uh, three areas that are not connected to one another, not physically connected to one another. One of those zones has been in the news, was in the news in January, the Kobani area, as the Islamic State was fighting for control of that area. Essentially, the three zones that make up Rojava in northern and northeastern Syria are de facto autonomous zones. My first thought about this, Dalar, uh, about this revolution is it has been allowed to exist because of a vacuum created by the Syrian civil war. I figured the government and military was busy, gave up on some areas, and the revolution was allowed to take place. But in fact, the Rojava revolution began back in 2004. So why did Bashar al-Assad allow it to go on? And what allowed allows it to continue to this day? Well, uh, Bashar al-Assad did not, in fact, allow the revolution in Rojava to go on. Well, in 2004, uh, an uprising uh, in Qamishlo uh, began, in which many people that took part in this uprising were arrested, they were tortured, they disappeared uh, in the prisons or elsewhere. Many of them are still missing today. So there was a lot of state repression back then, but it just wasn't very uh, relevant because at that time, Syria wasn't very relevant to the world. So ever since, uh, people have been struggling there for um, more than 10 years, but it got got largely unnoticed even by the um, Syrian opposition. So at that time, too, um, Syria had very good relations with uh, Turkey and other neighbors, and so on. So basically what happened after 2012, in which the Kurds were able to take over their regions um, after uh, Bashar al-Assad's forces withdrew, uh, because as you said, they were busy elsewhere in Aleppo, in Damascus, and so on. That that was just like the golden moment for the people to finally uh, seize control over their areas and to implement what they had envisioned before. So yeah, it's it's not um, right to say that uh, Assad allowed um, the Kurds to engage in politics of, of all this time because he simply didn't. Uh, Salih Muslim, actually the the co-president of the PYD, once said after he, he was being accused of collaborating with Assad, he said to Erdogan, the prime minister, the now president of Turkey, while. Kurds were being tortured in prison. You were having dinner with Bashar al-Assad. So that's, uh, I think this is very important to keep in mind. And also, um, even though the, you know, the 2012 period or in general, the Syrian civil war has provided a necessary vacuum for this revolution to take place, uh, this still has um, roots. You know, this ideology that they're fighting with this collective mobilization and so on, was pre-existent. It didn't just start in 2012. It was based on several other factors, 
such as ideology and so on. So 2012 was a new area, but it certainly was not the beginning. Yeah, and th- that's really fascinating. What You mentioned the PYD. Again, that's the uh, Democratic mm-hmm. Union Party. Here in the States, when we see any coverage of what is taking place in uh, Kurdistan, in uh, Syria, in Iraq, whenever there are any fights against the Islamic State, and Kurds are said to be winning the battle. For instance, the other day I was uh, in email contact with a friend of mine, Patrick Coburn. He was in Erbil. I was getting reports from there about how uh, within 20 miles of Erbil, the Islamic State had been held back by Kurdish fighters. But whenever it's Kurdish fighters, synonymous with that word, is Peshmerga. What do we miss when we believe that only the Peshmerga, what do we miss when we label all of the fighters, all of the Kurdish fighters, <laughs> Peshmerga? Yeah, well, what you're asking um, is very important. And it's also, to be honest, quite difficult to answer, given that right now everyone is propagating this necessary Kurdish unity notion facing the Islamic State. But the truth is the Kurds are not united, certainly not politically. So Peshmerga literally means uh, those who confront death. And uh, years ago, perhaps decades ago, this term was applied to uh, all Kurdish armed resistance forces that were fighting regimes such as Saddam Hussein and so on. And also the PKK guerrillas were called Peshmerga at one point. But now... That term is usually used for the fighters of the KRG who are um, paid and employed by the KRG government in northern Iraq, in South Kurdistan. So when we say, when we call all Kurdish fighters synonymous, we simply blur the fact that, well, they have very different politics, they belong, they have very different loyalties, ideologies. They are actually, they're perhaps only common denominator is the fact that they're Kurdish and that they are now fighting the Islamic State, but everything else is different. For example, um, PKK fighters are also fighting against the Islamic State, specifically in Mahmur, in Kirkuk, and in uh, Shengal, in Sinjar, as well. They played a key role in the rescue of the Ezidi community in in the August attack of the Islamic State. But the key difference here is that, well, the Peshmerga fighters of the KRG received weapons and military support and uh, financial aid, uh, humanitarian aid, and so on. And they should, of course they should. But <laughs> on, on the other hand, the PKK is labeled as terrorists by the same powers that provide the Kurdish uh, forces in northern Iraq with weapons and money and intelligence and so on. Also, the fighters of the YPJ and the YPG the People's Defense Forces and the Women's Defense Forces in uh, Rojava, uh, they are also they haven't received any support until uh, recently when the uh, Islamic State launched this major attack on Kobani. But they have been fighting for uh, against the Islamic State for more than two years, and in general for more than three years now. But they were completely ignored. So in fact, not only ignored but also <laughs> marginalized and excluded. Um, so we see very different perceptions of Kurdish fighters, different kinds of support or lack of support or marginalization even. So there's a huge selective empathy. And this has changed, but largely due to the fact that the people in Kobani have just displayed a, a completely epic resistance. That's when the sympathy towards them 
uh, increased. But before that, they were just seen as, you know, just another sister branch of another organization that is labeled as terrorist, the PKK. So, so I think it's very important to make that distinction because the people fighting the Islamic State in Syria or um, the fighters in Turkey, they don't call themselves Peshmerga, only the ones in uh, Iraq and also some in Iran, older armies, they have called themselves Peshmerga as well. So I think it's very interesting to notice the politics behind this selective empathy, and it, it, it has a lot to do with ideology, because the Kerji government is also very, uh, well, very close to different uh, states, uh, such as the United States, such as Turkey, etc., whereas uh, those affiliated with the PKK or uh, loosely affiliated, let's say, ideologically affiliated to the PKK, such as the fighters in Kobani and generally in Rojava, they have been marginalized and their ideology is radically different and, in fact, a danger to these states. So I think these are <laughs> some very important issues and that you can probably understand that it's quite hard to talk about these issues and act like there are no political divisions because right now, yes, the people are facing this Islamic State uh, threat, so it's very important to have a unified focus, but the truth is, ideologically and politically, these are very, very different systems, uh, actually almost opposite to each other. You know, when I was reading your work, when I was doing research about Rojava, I couldn't help but keep thinking who Turkey believes is their worse enemy, the Kurdish people or the Islamic State. One thing that is definitely was definitely not reported here in the U.S. was when the assault by the Islamic State started on Kobani, protests erupted throughout Turkey uh, amongst the Kurdish people who wanted to go fight yeah. and fight against Islamic State, go into Kobani and fight against the Islamic State. Why mm -hmm. did the Turkish government refused to allow those people in, and what does that tell us about the battle against the Islamic State? It would seem like this <laughs> is a huge obstacle in trying to defeat the Islamic State, if that's what Turkey really wants to do. Yes, well, if I, I think this is a very important issue, because if you look at Turkey's politics towards uh, Syria in general from the beginning, we can actually understand many of the things that are happening at the moment. The ugly truth is that well, many states that are now actually even forming the coalition against the Islamic State have benefited from jihadists being in Syria because their main goal was to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. And in many, many cases, they didn't care who was fighting him as long as Bashar leaves. This is a, you know, this is a strategy that has been used elsewhere as well in, in Afghanistan and elsewhere and so on. So this is very dangerous because you know one dictator cannot be replaced by another fascist system. But that was the politics of these states that acted like they wanted democracy for Syria, but actually they didn't care about the Syrian people. They just cared about their own interests. So um, countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, in fact, supported uh, financially, militarily, politically, logistically, jihadists in Syria. And this is, uh, you know, we have been saying this for years, but nobody listened. Actually, nobody cared because uh, they didn't want uh, to, uh, you know, 
they didn't want to see that. But at the same time, um, the, sorry, someone just asked me something. That's why I lost my my point. I'm sorry. Uh, the, for a long time, they benefited from this. And actually, yeah, that now I got my point back. We have been saying this for years, that these states are supporting jihadists in Syria, but it was just dismissed as some kind of conspiracy theory. But now even U.S. officials say that, and we're just like, well, good morning. We have been saying this for ages now. And what has been done this whole time, the Kurds were not invited anywhere to major decision-making conferences, the Geneva II conference and so on. So the, the Kurds were, in fact, marginalized long before jihadists were marginalized. And this is very important, not just by Turkey, but also by the United States because of their uh, you know, closeness to the PKK, which is labeled as terrorist by the most important NATO ally, Turkey, the second largest NATO army. So if we consider this and look at the fact that jihadists use Turkey as the main gate to get into Syria, uh, that jihadists, it has been repeatedly reported, were treated in private clinics in Turkey, that jihadists are just swinging their swords in Istanbul wearing T-shirt of uh, T-shirts of the Islamic State, while Kurdish activists, human rights activists, teachers, journalists are imprisoned by thousands in Turkey. We we can tell that actually, even though Erdogan has said for us ISIS and the PKK, and with the PKK the PYD are the same, he actually said that he said that the people who are raping and massacring and enslaving the people in the Middle East, ISIS. They are the same as the people who are fighting them in Kobani. This is actually what he said. But actually, if we deconstruct the statement, we will see and look at his actions, too, that actually they are not the same to him because the PKK and the YPD and YPJ did not receive any support from the Turkish government. And in fact, in October, while you know all these happenings were happening at the border when people tried to cross over but they weren't allowed, and the army actually attacked the people who wanted to go in and fight. At the same time, the Turkish army was able to see with naked eye the black flag of the Islamic State uh, from Suruç. Uh, they, they, they saw it literally when the Islamic State had advanced so much, but they didn't do anything. But what they did do is at the same time go and attack and bomb the Kandil Mountains, the, where the PKK are based. And you, as you've uh, mentioned, they are close to the ones that are fighting Islamic State. So in that time, Turkey actually went and attacked the those that are fighting uh, the Islamic State. So the, Turkey is a country that actively benefited from the situation. And for the last two years, there's been a peace process between the PKK and Turkey. And this could have been a moment for Turkey to prove that they're actually genuine about peace with the Kurds. But what did Turkey do instead? They said, no, we have our conditions for support for Kobani. Our conditions are that the PYD joins the Arab-Sunni opposition, that um, they sever their ties with the PKK, and that they give up any claims to autonomy. And this is absolutely unacceptable. And the people are about to, to face a massacre, and the, the president of Turkey wore his sunglasses and he just said all these macho statements like that because he exploited the desperate massacre situation in Kobani at that time. But 
he did not expect that all these clashes would erupt, that there almost a civil war started in Turkey. October was actually t- terrible here. I wasn't here. I was in uh, Europe, and we started a hunger strike there as well. So many, many things happened in the diaspora as well. And Turkey was pressured into uh, giving up these politics, but not voluntarily. So actually, we can say that it's not just Turkey. It's also all the other governments who are now forming this coalition against ISIS. Had they just listened to the ones that have been fighting, have been dying fighting the Islamic State for the last two, three years, all of this mess could have been avoided. Because those who have been fighting them have been warning them over and over and over again. So the Islamic State, just the word ISIS or Islamic State, is very new for many people. Many people have only gotten to know this organization since the summer when, you know, Iraq was attacked also, or after August when the massacre on the Ezidis happened. But we have been talking about this for the last couple of years and simply put, nobody cared. And now everyone tries to act like the hero, but we know who is the real hero and who has been fighting the Islamic State for this long and who has been actively marginalized by the same forces who are now forming the coalition. I'm sorry about this rant. But no, this no, very... no. Dilar, I want to make sure you understand. That is exactly what I want you to do. That is exactly, that is the, that is a spectacular answer. And that's exactly what this show is about, allowing people to talk as long as they want. We are yeah. not limited by commercials, so don't worry about it. We are speaking with Dilar Derek. She is an activist of the Kurdish Women's Movement and a PhD candidate in the sociology department of the University of Cambridge, where her research focuses on Kurdistan, the Kurdish Women's Movement, and the PYD, or Democratic Union Party, which has existed existed in the Rojava territories since 2004. She is speaking to us live from Kurdistan, and you can read her blog at rojwomen.org. That's R-O-J-W-O-M-E-N.org. Let's get to the PKK for a moment. The last time we had a guest on the show to discuss the plight of the Kurds, the Kurdish language was still illegal in Turkey, and Turkey didn't even recognize Kurds as actually existing. They denied there were Mm -hmm. Kurds. NATO, and Turkey is a member of NATO, designated the PKK as a terror group in 2000. In 2008, the European Court of First Instance ordered the PKK to be removed from the EU terror list because the EU failed to give a proper justification for listing the PKK as a terror group, but EU officials dismissed the ruling. Individually, most EU countries do not have the PKK on their terror list, but the UK, US, and France do. The PKK has never... Germany as well. And Germany. uh, Sorry. Uh, The PKK has never been designated as a terrorist organization by the UN. You write, quote, it is intellectually and journalistically lazy and factually fraudulent to keep calling the PKK a separatist organization, as many news outlets do. The PKK condemned civilian attacks that were committed in their name, declared several unilateral ceasefires, and currently is engaging in peace talks. Even the Turkish state accepts the PKK as a negotiating partner. So there's been a ceasefire since March 2013, as you were saying. How far would the war against the Islamic State move forward if the PKK was delisted as a terror group by the United States? Oh, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> I, I don't think I can give a definite answer to it, but I think that would actually be a major solution to many problems that we face because the terror listing not only means that this organization will not get any military support, even though they would need it because they're actually out there fighting the Islamic State, 
it also means that anyone who's trying to raise this issue, you know, even just me talking to you right now, if a police officer was listening to me right now, I could perhaps be put in prison. And imagine that we're just trying to engage in this common sense uh, conversation. But this is what the terroristing means, that just a thought crime makes you a potentially a prisoner. And it's the same in Europe, actually. The criminalization of the of ordinary Kurdish people in Europe is absolutely insane. Um, you know, journalists get arrested all the time in Europe. Nobody really talks about it because it's also a taboo. Um, people cannot really engage in legal, um, legal work. The institutions cannot work properly. They cannot get any funds. So it's it's just absolutely insane. So just just even communication, spreading information is restricted by this terrorist label. Uh, so people cannot. Um, I had this conversation with one woman, and she was trying to give some. Uh, she didn't really have the knowledge of anything, to be honest. But she was just trying to help and explain why Kurdish organizations and ordinary news pages don't apply for funding so that they can work better. But that's the point. You cannot apply for funding if the governments in Europe see you as a potential terrorist. So apart from that, um, uh, listing people as terrorists just, just does a lot. It has a lot of social impacts. It impacts my own research as well. I cannot work properly. Many people cannot work properly. And there's so many people who want to do something and they have to do it illegally, even though everything they're doing is good. So um, the United States, for example, doesn't really... The, the problem with this terroristing is it's absolutely politically motivated. It has everything to do with Turkey being an important NATO ally. The PKK does not pose a single threat to any citizen of the United States. And everyone actually knows this. Everyone knows it. I mean, in the 90s, there were escalations in Germany, which is why the PKK was listed. This was especially when um, Abdullah Öcalan was uh, arrested. People were engaging in some violent acts. But that was like very context-related, and these actions have been renowned, and so on. And it was not a... I mean, it was not like random terrorist violence or anything. It was something completely different. And the fact that the PKK, which has moved away from many of its initial aims, including that of a separate state, uh, is still considered as a terrorist organization, it has a lot to do also with the fact that the monopoly on power and force is on the state. So the violence and the real terrorism in the classical sense of states such as Turkey against ordinary people who are exercising their rights given by the same constitution of the same state, that is not seen as terrorism. It's seen as legitimate use of force, whereas the resistance of the people is labeled as terrorists because they're non-state actors, because we just worship the state and the uh, global system. So that's why the terrorist labeling is connected to so many other things. And I think if the PKK would be delisted, by the United States, it would first of all mean just something very common sense, commonsensical because the PKK does not pose a terrorist threat to the United States of America. But it would also acknowledge that a bigger danger to the U.S. is not the PKK, but in fact their NATO ally, Turkey. Because as we have seen, Turkey's politics actively contributed to the rise of ISIS 
And um, now it is the same people that are listed as terrorists by the United States that are the biggest enemies of ISIS. So it has a lot to do with foreign policy, really. So I don't know what can be done because these terrorist things are so random. And sometimes just one single signature can change everything. And I don't really believe in terrorist things. I do believe that, you know, terrorism in the classical sense, you know, just irrationally spreading fear and uh, terrorizing people, that is a thing. But actually, many states are doing that, not non-state actors who are often resistant forces. So that's why the terroristing is a huge bureaucratic obstacle to a huge cause. And uh, I could go on and on like this because it, it really impacts it really impacts very uh, millions of people right. who are just um, trying to live normal lives. And uh, just one article can label you as terrorist because of that. And it's just really, really inadequate. People have to move on and realize that the PKK is not the same as it was before. Uh, it is engaging in negotiations, as I've said. The aims are not the same anymore. They do not pose any threat to ordinary citizens. The uh, violence is directed at the state, and that actually there is no violence right now because for two years there has been a ceasefire, and it's just one of the many unilateral ceasefires issued by the PKK's administration. So, yeah, I think we just all have to check our uh, priorities when we talk about uh, terrorist things and how much sense it makes to keep the PKK on there. Delar, uh, you what... don't have to like it. You know, you arguing for uh, PKK's removal from these lists does not mean that you endorse the PKK. It just means that you recognize that it's just such an inadequate decision to keep them on there because... Yeah, for many reasons. Right. So, so what would so uh, yesterday, uh, President Obama announced that there is going to be a an assault on Mosul, the uh, capital of the Islamic State, and that this is going yeah. to uh, mean twenty five up to twenty to twenty five thousand uh, troops on the ground in a ground invasion. Let me ask you this then, because I think this is important. Because uh, this mm-hmm. has to do with more about politics. I think this war has a lot to do uh, more about politics than it has to do with military strategy. What would be of greater benefit in the war against the Islamic State? Sending in 25,000 ground troops and doing airstrikes as the U.S. has or delisting the PKK and recognizing the people in Rojava as an alternative mm-hmm that we're looking for, the alternative that we're looking for to offer to people who might be attracted by the Islamic State? Well, there have been several ground invasions by the United States in the Middle East, and we all know the outcome. And one of these outcomes is, in fact, a vacuum that that helped the Islamic State to rise. Because we look at the politics of America and Iraq ever since the, uh, the 2003, and we see um, that the marginalization of the Sunni uh, community there, for example, has contributed a lot to the fact that many people do, in fact, support the Islamic State. Uh, the post-9-11 Islamophobia that was fueled afterwards, um, and which was used to legitimize the wars in the Middle East also contributed to the fact that many, many jihadists are now flying all the way from, you know, Canada, America, from European countries to take revenge 
um, on the West, which is why you also see attacks like the one in Paris, in Copenhagen, and so on. So nobody, absolutely nobody, wants American ground troops in the Middle East, okay? There are many, many forces on the ground, including the Kurdish forces, who can fight them and who are willing to fight them. Because, look, it's different to go on a mission to supposedly spread democracy um, in, in a place where the context is just so so confusing and uh, complicated. It's different from defending your home, okay? So the people in Kobane and, in, and elsewhere... in uh, We just lost her, I can tell. Yeah, I'll get back. When you hear that pop, you know (laughs) that the Kurdish phone system is out. And let us hope that it isn't because of the Turkish phone system. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm working on it right now. The Turkish phone system is out. Uh, We are speaking with Dilara Durek. Uh, Again, she is a Kurdish refugee, an activist of the Kurdish women's movement, and a PhD candidate in the sociology department at the University of Cambridge, where her research focuses on Kurdistan, the Kurdish women's movement, and the PYD, or Democratic Union Party, which has existed in the Rojava territories since. Since 2004, you can read her blog at rogewomen.org slash tag slash dollar dash Derek. But just go to rogewomen.org and put her name in the search area and you will find it there. It's D-I-L-A-R-D-I-R-I-K. This has been a fascinating conversation. This is what I love about this show. I learn stuff every week on this show. It's fantastic. My opinions and my views of the world change every week. And if you're the kind of person who is open-minded enough and independent thinking enough to allow their opinions to change each and every week once they get more information, then you are tuned into the correct show. We make learning about evil and really hard things incredibly, incredibly fun. That's what happens every Saturday morning right here on This is Hell from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago's sound experiment. This might take us a couple of minutes to hook up with uh, Dilara because, as I was saying, she's in Kurdistan and and, uh, getting a phone call into Kurdistan is a little bit difficult. You also have to remember that she is with uh, an organization. uh, She is defending people who here in the United States are labeled as terrorists. And that is really something that, uh, as I got to agree with Dilara, that is that label is often set in politics and not sent in set in safety and security it's not about putting people on a list who kill and target civilians to spread fear often as she was saying it's about a resistance group that is targeting the state and when you are a resistance group in her definition if you are a resistance groups targeting the state yep. oh hello dollar Great to have you back on. I was so worried that we had lost you. Hey, listen, real quick, I want to talk about the the way in which uh, Rojava is structured, because this is what I was saying about how here in the U.S., everybody's saying, oh, we have to offer Muslims. you got to remember, the conversation here in the U.S. is so Islamophobic. Mm -hmm. you just got to keep that in mind, okay? So they say, 
we have to offer something to Muslims other than this radical Islamist idea that like the Islamic <laughs> State has. We have to offer something different. What can we offer? So at the Roge Women's Association's website where you blog, that's rogewomen.org, there's a story posted from the November 10th International Business Times headlined Syria ISIS Crisis. Kurds grant women equal rights in defense of ISIS laws. New decree also <laughs> abolishes forced marriage and honor killing. The story reports yeah. the local government of an autonomous Kurdish uh, area in Syria has granted women equal rights to men. What do you mean by equal rights to men? Because this sounds great. There isn't equal rights to men between men and women anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, first of all, this whole talk about the West having to offer something to the Back or civilized right, right. all this time is completely idiotic, patronizing, dehumanizing, and just incredibly hypocritical. Given the fact that it, if it wasn't for Western politics in the Middle East, this region would not be as this bloodshed uh, place. Uh, you know, I, this is the, the devastation, the the horrible stuff that is happening here has a lot to do with the Western imperialism. So um, I think this is very important to keep in mind. And also, uh, assuming that Muslims or Muslim communities or anything, anyone who does not live in an advanced capitalist country cannot come up with own solutions to their forms of organization of life is just is very, very um, racist and just many other things. First of all, the, this this news item is actually quite old and it's very inadequate. And there was an, a columnist on CNN who wrote something very problematic, also meaning to sound very nice or something. I don't know what her intention was, but basically what she said is the Kurdish women who are fighting against ISIS are in fact trying to send us, the West, a message that they share our values. No, they simply don't. They have much, much better things to do than to worry about what white women in America think about them. You know, first of all, the people in uh, Rojava actively oppose capitalism as an economic system. They oppose the premises on which the international order is built, such as the state, such as patriarchy and so on. And they do not believe that women are more liberated in the West. So giving them rights is actually also nothing that happened recently, ever since the beginning, since 2012, um, in the foundations of uh, the, these uh, three cantons as well, they have said, they have gotten rid of um, polygamy, of child marriage, of uh, the criminalized honor killings, uh, and so on. So this equal rights thing was there before, but the important emphasis is that they, the women's movement in Rojava does not think in terms of rights, because uh, there is no state to give you rights. They, they, they have learned it the hard way that rights simply don't exist. You have to struggle in order to create a society in which social justice and equality are internalized, because it's, who, who cares about rights that exist on paper and don't mean anything in reality? Because this is a very feudal patriarchal society. And only with the real meaningful struggle, the society, the mentality society, uh, of the society can change. So, uh, terming it in terms of, oh, look, these, there's equal rights here. And on the other hand, ISIS is enslaving women. This is also very simplistic 
And this is not what this revolution is about. This revolution is also criticizing the West. It's also criticizing this chauvinism with which many people are approaching what's happening there. And this is actually something that's quite common, I think, in uh, advanced capitalist countries, uh, even among the leftists who look down on revolutions or, you know, changes in, in the global south. And I think this is very problematic. And um, even though many of these people are trying to be in solidarity with the people there, they actually don't do them a favor by pitting different communities against each other and make it about secularism versus religion or civilization versus barbarism. No, the issue is much, much more complicated than that. Had it not been for U.S. politics in Iraq, uh, for the NATO in the Middle East, and all these other issues that are linked to imperialism and also to ideas and ideals imposed on other places by the West, this barbarism was not possible. And American drones, for example, are they less barbaric than, I don't know, something else? So these are very comfortable ways out of very, very difficult and uncomfortable questions. We have to ask ourselves, what, which policies contributed to the rise of ISIS? Which wars contributed to this devastation? Why are so many people... Uh, having this kind of reaction. Why are so many Muslims from European countries, from the U.S., from China, I don't know, from any random country going to jihad in Syria and Iraq? And it's not because they're religious and because they're Muslim or whatever. And they're not crazy either. They're actually quite focused, unfortunately. Um, we have to criticize the entire system in which we live in. And that, that's when we will see we cannot just make clear-cut divisions between black and white, between West and East, and so on, because we, these issues are <laughs> very, very complicated. And if we look at, just very simply, at global arms trade, who's trading arms with whom? For example, the country I grew up in, where I received asylum when I was a child, Germany, has openly, in, uh, you know, in huge uh, uh, exhibition-style uh, places, sold arms to countries like Qatar and Saudi Arabia, all the villages that were destroyed here in Turkey, the Kurdish villages, were destroyed by German tanks. Okay, and then we have this country that calls itself democratic and opposes any kind of uh, barbarism, supposedly, in the Middle East. But it's German weapons with which the people here are fighting, both uh, the regimes as well as non-state actors. So this, these issues just show us how hypocritical it is to think in these black or white terms. And I think uh, it's a very easy way to... Uh, to push responsibility away. But I think if we have to be honest about it, we have to confront these uncomfortable issues and also realize that, yes, people are able. If the people in the Middle East are left alone, if nobody comes and constantly hijacks their dreams and visions and revolutions and their genuine desires to create a better, brighter world, uh, if all these revolutions in the Arab Spring had not been hijacked by foreign forces who supposedly advocate democracy but just really want to stir up the situation further, this region would be different. It would be <laughs> the, the mosaic, the beautiful place that it could be. But it's not because it's in non nobody's interest that the Middle East develops. And this is the tragedy of our time, I think. So um, 
Yeah, just another rant. <laughs> yeah, Delar, that's and I love your rants. I'm thinking about hiring you to do a rant every week. Hey, listen, uh, uh, one of the things I wanted to mention real quick, because you were talking, uh, we were mentioning stereotypes that the West has yeah. of the Middle East, of uh, Arab people, of Muslim people, all the stereotypes yeah. that we have. And one, you write about how much the glamorization of the Kurdish woman fighter is distracting the media from the message that the Kurdish woman, from the politics of the Kurdish women fighters. Yeah. But the reason I think, and I have not seen this glamorization of Kurdish women fighters in the media, I assume that it's there. And when I went and searched for it, I found it all over the place. And you're absolutely yeah. right. That glamorization does take us from that, I, uh, takes us away from uh, discussing the politics. However, I think that this is all based on, obviously, I think stereotypes and sexism and racism towards yeah. people in the Middle East, because we believe in the West, that it is the most patriarchal society in the Middle East and that the women are, you know, for whatever reason, even if it's just the wearing of the veil, that somehow that they are subjugated or subordinated or somehow that they uh, like that position. They don't mind being subordinated or subjugated. But in fact, that is not the case whatsoever. Why is it not unique to you that Kurdish women are leading the fight against the Islamic State? That, thank you for these questions. Well, um, first of all, we do have to keep in mind that this is a very patriarchal region. That is true. But there's many different reasons for that. But that is true that these, in this region, women uh, have it really bad. It's always important to keep that in mind. But, uh, well, I'm a 90s child, and I grew up seeing guerrilla, uh, Kurdish guerrilla fighters. Uh, who are women, and most people in my generation, uh, I mean, all Kurdish people in my generation, some slightly older and uh, those who are younger, have grown up with this reality. So actually, if Kurdish women had not been fighting against Islamic State, we would have been surprised, because this has just been established as um, as something quite natural in Kurdish politics. And it doesn't matter if you support these fighters or if you don't, the truth is they are there. And this, of course, shapes your perception of women. If you see women who are armed as fighters fighting against different states, that does a lot with your perception. So um, it's important to keep in mind that the cause of women in places that are perceived as oppressed or oppressive and so on has often been used by imperialism, you know, to, we have to go and rescue the women, uh, for example, Afghan women, Iraqi women. This has always been used to portray this region as this very patriarchal, backward place, and the West has to intervene and rescue specifically the women. But many times the voices of these women are not listened to. Many women, I mean, you have, you can disagree or agree with it, but many women do not just, um, measure their level of oppressiveness by a veil that they are wearing or not wearing. It's, it's not simple like that. So uh, in order to justify these unjust wars in the Middle East, the women have always been portrayed as uh, the, these victims that need to be rescued. But what happened? Why don't the U.S. drone strikes, uh, the, the drones, the, the airstrikes, the uh, devastation that was caused in these wars have uh, which have disproportionately affected women and killed women and displaced women 
that it is that not oppression or what? I mean, we you know justifying the existing patriarchy in this region uh, for uh, I mean justifying unjust wars by that is just absolutely insane. So, for from an Orientalist perspective, seeing women taking up arms against this explicitly feminicidal system of ISIS, of course, challenges, first of all, very stereotypical prejudice uh, perceptions of women in the Middle East. But, as I said uh, in my articles and as we mentioned earlier, this is not something that just came out of nowhere. Uh, and it's very uh, disheartening to see that the politics of these women are just taken out of the equation. But the truth is, as, as we've discussed earlier, the, the ideology of the PKK plays an explicit role in this. The PKK's ideology is directly responsible for the fighters in Kobani who are women. I was there, not in Kobani, but in another region in Rojava. I spoke to these women fighters and I spoke about the media's representation as well. And one of them said, well, one commander said, we don't want the world to know us as the women fighting ISIS only. And we also don't want people to know us for our weapons. We want them to know us for our ideas. And our ideas are based on the philosophy of Abdullah Öcalan, who is the uh, philosophical, ideological representative of the PKK. So this is something a commander of a brigade that is fighting against ISIS in Dojava has told me and others. And you see Öcalan's pictures everywhere. So... Yeah, you may or may not like the PKK, or but that does not matter. What matters is the fact that these people are fighting with this philosophy. And when Kobani was liberated, they immediately uh, chanted slogans praising Ojalan, uh, for example. Okay, You can criticize many things, but at least acknowledge that this is these people's loyalties. You don't have to like it. You can criticize this ideology, but this is... What it is, this ideology lies behind this resistance against the Islamic State. But nobody wants to know that because the PKK is listed as a terrorist organization. And thus, taking these women who are fighting against ISIS as this sympathetic enemy against um, Islamic State and also legitimizing your Islamophobia and racism with it by saying, oh, look, uh, so Islamic State is being uh, hurt by women, ha-ha, this is also very problematic, you know, because the fight against ISIS by these women is much, much more than that. And uh, it's really important to listen to what these women are saying, and you will see that you cannot draw it in black or white uh, colors. The, the important thing here is that, um, it's yeah, it's first of all important to keep in mind that it's incredibly brave that these women are fighting against an, an ideology that is explicitly enslaving women as sex slaves, raping them, selling them, killing them, and so on. So this, these are two quite contrary um, worldviews, if we say. But on the other hand, why not support the politics of Rojava, the system that has been created there, that is explicitly centered around women's liberation, gender equality is being taught to the soldiers, to the internal security officers, to the teachers, to the health officers, and so on. So there is a new kind of alternative society that is being created there. But that's also something that people don't want to see. Even leftists, even uh, anarchists and so on, people who should be in solidarity with what is happening in Rojava, keep criticizing for not being, I don't know, ideology X uh, enough. 
Marxist enough, anarchist enough, feminist enough, whatever. But the truth is these people are creating a new life there. They are establishing a revolution there. And it should be everyone's task to support this and at least give constructive critique rather than just ranting about uh, why uh, they're not fitting into your dogmatic ideologies or whatever. So I think this is very, very important. And the case of women, specifically Muslim women, has been used to legitimize many terrible things, but one, uh, just one uh, illustration of why this is just ridiculous is that, for example, many women that are actually fighting against ISIS are practicing Muslims, for example. So this is not about religion versus something else, civilization versus barbarism. The, we have to redefine what we mean by barbarism, and we will see that global arms trade, uh, foreign policy, uh, NATO and so on have a lot to do with barbarism. One last question for you, Delar. But first, before I ask the last question, I just want to make sure that people in our audience know that you, as well as a whole bunch of other delegates, including uh, David Graeber in December, went to the yeah. Rojava area. You released a statement on Rojava. We have that at our Facebook page right now. People can go read it. You can find out how you can help support the people of Rojava by going there. We have been speaking with Delar Derek. She is an activist of the Kurdish Women's Movement and a PhD candidate in the Sociology Department of the University of Cambridge where her research focuses on Kurdistan, the Kurdish women's movement, and the PYD, or Democratic Union Party, which has existed in the Rojava territories uh, since since 2004. Dalar's blog is at rojwomen.org, rojwomen.org, that's R-O-J-W-O-M-E-N.org. One last question for you, Dalar, and I'm can going I, to... Can I just say something? Sure, sure, quick. go. My, that's actually not my blog. They, they just repost my blog sometimes. Oh, where's my your blog? blog? Bil- <laughs> my blog is bilar bilar91.blogspot.com. Uh, okay, Dilar91. We'll... <laughs> Those Women is an organization in the UK with uh, whom I work, and uh, they repost my articles there sometimes. Okay, so but people so <laughs> people can find it by going to, uh, just go to Dilar91. I am sure that you will find it. Uh, one last question for you, Dilar, and I got to say, I, uh, okay, so the last question that we do with every one of our guests is, we call it the question from hell. It's the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. And I got to tell you, I am going to, I'm going to hate asking this question. Okay, so keep that in mind. So, uh, do you believe that the Islamic State, because of the way it so horribly treats rapes, enslaves women, do you believe that the Islamic State can actually bolster feminism in the Middle East and around the world? Uh, By bolster, you mean... uh, Have people realize that all of a sudden, maybe if you take it to, if you take uh, the patriarchal structure to an extreme, this is what's going to happen. Do you think that that could actually get uh, more people involved in more feminist things because finally they're seeing, oh, this is as far as it can go? Well, I was expecting a much worse question. <laughs> oh, good, 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 good. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite comfortable with this question. I think um, yes and no. Well, one terrible thing about this is like whenever a whole huge tragedy such as this one happens is that the threshold of bad stuff that people can handle just uh, changes. So 
things then start to be measured by the worst, you know. So, for example, the enslavement of all these, specifically the Yazidi women, uh, has just traumatized and done so much damage and suffering to the people in the region. So it, one danger of this is that from now on, violence against women would be measured by these standards, like even worse standards. So the worse the standards get, the more tolerance we have to it. And that's a horrible, horrible side effect. But on the other hand, I think not the Islamic State's uh, specific war on women, but rather the resistance which women have shown, specifically in Kobani, has changed a lot. It changed the terms of uh, being women in the Middle East, I think. I know many people who even contact me just to say how inspired they are and how this has inspired their own struggles. So I think it's not this uh, Islamic State's um, terribleness, but the resistance, the, the strength, the, uh, the pride, really pride, and the real sense of these women with which uh, they confronted the Islamic State and showed that a different world is possible, that women can do this and that, that, they, that women exist, that women are not slaves, that women have the power to change uh, their status and change the patriarchy in the region. I think it's the women's resistance that will change perceptions and uh, issues of violence against women and patriarchy and so on, but only if it's accompanied by a longer uh in endless struggle because just taking up arms in times of war and conflict uh, is often in danger of just being forgotten afterwards. But if we look at the system in Rojava, we will see that all the policies of the people there, the activeness of the women's movement, and just from speaking to the fighters there, how they tell about the ways their lives have changed, how they are seen as, you know, different now because they're women, because they have taken in part in this resistance. I think this is what will eventually change, um, not what the Islamic State has done. But also, I think, I mean, I know from many men who I, I've talked to, I mean, this is also just individuals, but they are saying we're ashamed of being men after seeing what the Islamic State has done in the name of, you know, manhood and patriarchy and so on. So I think many issues play into this. And I really, I can hope that this, I mean, I don't, I cannot imagine a scenario in which the situation of women will be even worse than it is right now in Syria and in Iraq. I can, I simply cannot think of anything worse than what is happening right now. And not just in these countries and other countries in the Middle East and elsewhere as well. So I think, uh, from what I've seen, from what I've observed, the women who have been fighting against ISIS have really been like a like a rising sun to many people. And I think this will be a much more powerful counterforce uh, than, than what the Islamic State has done in terms of damage. Well, this morning in Chicago, Dilara, I have to tell you that you are a rising sun for me. I really, really appreciate you being on the show with us this morning. And now that you've made the huge, huge mistake of responding to our emails, and I have your email address, I'm going to bug you to have you on on a regular basis. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. This really was an honor. Thank you very, very much. I truly Thank appreciate you so it. much. I'm very happy uh, to be on your show. I really appreciate also, the kindness of your tone, I really appreciate the conversational, uh, you know, 
method that we engaged in. It's very nice because I've been interviewed a lot recently and I'm tired of giving the same answers, the same uh, conclusions and so on. That's why I kind of ranted because I actually just finished um, interviewing a woman who was a coal mayor in a city here and she just told me her story and she was uh, married off at 15 and then she was a mo mother as a, when she was underage and she went through years of domestic violence and now she's the co-mayor of a very patriarchal district here in Diyarbakir. And her story just really, really touched me. And when she said, this is all due to the Kurdish women's movement and the Kurdish liberation movement, it was just very inspiring. And that's why I'm also quite emotionally loaded right now because all of these things, the increasing sexual violence here in Turkey, the fight against ISIS in uh, Kobani and generally in Kurdistan and elsewhere, uh, the perception of Muslims, uh, because this woman was a veiled uh, practicing Muslim actually, uh, all these things are linked together and actually this just talking to her was very, very emotional and I think I'm very happy that this struggle of women like her who have gone through years of domestic violence and now can be politicians in the public sphere that this same struggle is now being, uh, you know, talked about in a show, in a radio show in Chicago. That just makes me really happy. That's why I thank you for having me on the show. Well, thank you for being on. And I, I tell you, I'm going to be emailing you in the very near future to get you back on the air. Thank you very, very much. Great. Thank you. And I wish you all the success for your show. Thank you. And enjoy the rest of your day in Kurdistan. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. All right, there you have it. That was Chuck in 2015 talking to Dilar Dirik about the Kurdish freedom movement at that time. That was a great interview. I hope you found that interesting, checking in on Rojava in 2015 and 2020 before that. And this is Dan Hill speaking with you in 2022. If you like that kind of stuff and want us to be able to keep making it, head on over to patreon.com. Everybody gets three free shows a week, but the true This Is Hell Patreon faithful are rewarded incredibly with a fourth show. These Patreon-exclusive episodes feature all-new monologues with host Chuck Meritz as well as a, an interview available nowhere else from This Is Hell's 26-year history of broadcasting. Sign up. You'll be glad you did. Patreon.com slash This Is Hell. Okay, friends. I'll leave it at that. We're still in limbo next week, playing deep cuts from the vault. It should be Sebastian in on Monday, Lindsay on Tuesday. I'll be back in on Wednesday. I look forward to that. Until then... Until then... My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>